And now, get growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 and KSTE.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Happy Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE on this Memorial Day weekend. There are no holidays in radio. Glad to have you along. Don Shore is here from Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis as well. There are no holidays in retail either. <laughs> yeah, you're open today. We're <laughs> open great. today. Yep. And We're here answering your questions. And just give us a call with your garden questions at 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Email, sure, send it to fred at farmerfred.com. A little bit later on, we'll have a garden grappler question clue available at farmerfred.com or at uh, the Twitter page at Farmer Fred or at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. Hi, Terry. Terry's running the board today. And... Um, Weather. You're supposed to talk about weather at this stage. Exactly. I was I was getting to that in that uh, seeing if the temperature is zooming up. Zooming 72 up. degrees is what I'm coming up with. Of course, I have Davis page open. I don't know. This side of the causeway might be a little you know, warmer. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> 72 degrees right now going up to a high today of 88, as sunny and clear. Sunny and clear through Tuesday. 95 is now what they're saying for Davis on Memorial Day. And a little bit warmer on Tuesday or a little bit uh, less? Cooler, 94 oh. on Tuesday. Now, here's the thing. This is the important part. Dropping down to 81 on Wednesday and 72 on Thursday. And these night temperatures are just driving me crazy. It's going to be 58 and 61 tonight, tomorrow night. That's great. We're not going to be thrilled about it as people, but the plants that we're planting in our vegetable gardens will finally be getting some heat and enjoying that. And then it's going to drop down to 50 degrees on Wednesday night yeah. and 51 degrees on Thursday night. And only warming back up to 78 for the high on Friday and back up to 87 on Saturday. So warm, really warm, really cool, and then back to normal warm. And sunny skies throughout. Sunny skies throughout, yes. Mostly clear or sunny uh, all the way through. Yeah, exactly. Partly partly cloudy Thursday night. And for Sacramento, much the same. Upper 80s today, mid-90s tomorrow and Tuesday, and then dropping <laughs> 80 on Wednesday, 73 on Thursday. I mean, it's delightful to be out in the garden at 5.30, 6 in the evening and not be worrying about overheating uh, yeah. with the breeze coming in. And when I, on our side of the valley, the breeze is you know 20 miles an hour from the Delta. Uh, but it is slowing some things down. I'm kind of concerned about uh, blossom end rot showing up on tomatoes and some other vegetables a few weeks down from now mm-hmm. because people are probably having trouble figuring out how to water. You, for example, how are you watering? Actually, I was just thinking about how if I owned an HVAC company, I'm going to get a, a load of calls on Tuesday and Wednesday, and I'm thinking I'm going to try to book them all on Thursday when it's 72. Yeah. So if I'm crawling up in an attic. <laughs> get that done before the real heat hits. Yes, exactly. Right. I mean, last year, the entire month of July in Sacramento, July had a record. Every day in the month of July was above 90 degrees. We were almost there in Davis, but one of those days was 89, so we didn't get the bragging rights. That was a record. There were a couple of real high spikes of temperature. The end of June, we were 110 degrees mm-hmm. for two days in a row, and then that happened again in late July, early August. So we had a good seven weeks without good pollination weather on tomatoes. Last year, I had a lot of customers coming in in August saying, oh, my tomatoes just didn't do anything. I pulled them out. I thought, oh, my God, you pulled them out in August. We've still got two months for them to oh, fruit. Oh, easily. Yeah. yeah, I had a huge crop in October because mm-hmm. we finally got good pollination weather in August. Common question I get since our average high here in July is about 93. And I always tell people that most tomato varieties will drop their blossoms above about 90. And they're common. Well, isn't it above 90 all the time? Well, last July, it sure seemed like that. But uh, in a normal summer, an average summer, I should say, 
we bounce back and forth. We have days in the 80s, and we have days up there 90s, even 100, and we have about 50% of the time we have proper pollination weather for tomatoes. And I expect we're, you know, that would be our, our, our trend perhaps this year, but last year was an exception. We didn't really get fruit set except for some very early fruit set. We didn't really get anything going on until August. We've still got seven to 10 weeks for the fruit to develop with plenty of sunshine. I have a lot of green tomatoes. Right yeah, now. they said early, and yeah. people are getting good yeah. good set. And I have a feeling we will, unfortunately, probably see a lot of blossom end rot, especially on some varieties, but others should do well. And the people will be finally getting tomatoes in the first week of July, unlike most years. So I believe the question you asked was, how am I watering the yes. raised beds? Mm-hmm. Carefully. 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 How, and, but, how often? Uh, well, that depends on the weather. Now, for instance, <laughs> on Friday, we had a half inch of rain. Yeah. All right. Yeah. means I don't have to water Saturday and Sunday. Right. All right. Now, with 90 degree weather Monday and Tuesday, I will take my trusty moisture meter out there, plunge it into the soil eight inches deep and see what the little meter says as far as how moist the soil is. Generally speaking, with a raised bed, because of its narrower footprint for water, it doesn't spread out like it would in bare garden soil. Right. It tends to go straight down. I will water more frequently, not necessarily adding more water, just more frequently. So if I'm, uh, let's do the math for for one emitter. So if it's one gallon hour emitter, um, let's say, for example, I'd have it on for an hour once a week in maybe early spring. Mm-hmm. maybe late fall, as we go into May and June, I might go up to three times a week. And if it gets really hot, I might do it four or five, but it's not going to be for an hour. It's right. going to be for half that. Now, my recollection is that your previous property, where you had some raised beds and you used, you used the emitterized tubing, you had come to a point where you were watering daily yep. uh, for 35 to 45 minutes each day. Yeah, it was a little less than that. It was yeah. probably uh, 25 to 35 minutes. Yeah, somewhere I, took, I think we took it and we crunched the numbers and you were yeah. doing basically the same watering other people were doing. But because of the fast draining soil that you mm-hmm. were using, and this is important for anyone listening who's doing containers or raised planters that you filled with purchased topsoil, which is generally rather sandy. And, At and least drains it quickly. Drains really fast. Water just runs right through it. You need to distribute the water very evenly over the whole thing. You need emitters every few inches. If, I mean, every foot, certainly. Mm-hmm. And you probably, I think you were using five lines for a four-foot wide bed or something like that. Actually, in those beds, I was using three lines. Yeah, that wouldn't work real well. No, and I went in the new place now, even though the beds are still four feet wide, I'm using four lines that are running the length of the The equivalent of an emitter per foot. Yeah, And that should wet the whole bed if you run it long enough. Mm -hmm. And in that instance, daily watering may be one case where daily watering is appropriate. It would be very challenging for the soil to retain enough moisture to go several days between waterings. People in a normal garden bed... By midsummer, I water my tomatoes on my silty loam class one agricultural soil <sighs> once a week. And, and I can go 10 days mm-hmm. you know, between waterings, but I'm giving them several gallons of water when I do. Uh, so they're getting enough to store water down there where the roots are. I don't do that with peppers and eggplant. They go two or three times a week still because they're shallower rooted. But nothing needs water daily in your garden once it's established, unless you're in a raised planter, you may. Yeah. Or maybe if you're at the top of a slope. Right. Well, if it's running off, and obviously, actually a better adjustment there is to put the water on more slowly. Right. Use a half gallon an hour emitter or something that emits, and just be sure to adjust for how long it runs so it is getting enough water. Exactly. Ready to answer some questions? Sure. All right. Let's go to the phones. Numbers to call in, 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Let's go down to Turlock and talk with John here on Get Growing. Good morning, John. Morning, uh, guys. Uh, I, I just had a question. I'm uh, about uh, uh, 
uh, grafting fruit trees. Now, I I did some grafting uh, in the uh, in the winter months, and mm-hmm. uh, to and I'm new to this, so and I had some success. But now I I want to do some. Uh, I guess you would call them uh, uh, chip budding, mm-hmm. you know, uh, taking, uh, because, you know, I have an aprium. You guys mentioned aprium. My aprium's doing really good. My They're blend great. time yep. uh, is, uh, and so I figure, well, hey, I'll, I'll try that. So my question is, I, I do have bare root uh, in the ground right now that I'm going to do some, and I, under, I understand uh, the, the technique, not that I may do it right, but I understand it. But it's 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 doing it to another tree. In other words, I want to I want to put a nectarine on my on my peach tree and uh, my aprium on my apricot. So, what is the best thing? Because these are mature trees. Okay, they're all mature trees. Uh, you know, eight foot tall or wh- whatever. So, uh, the question is, should I try to do it on a side branch or should I try to do it on the main? or does it make any difference where I do the chip budding? I almost don't see it done on a side branch, although I'm not sure that there's, a, the only relevance to that would be that the bark is thicker on a, on the main trunk, yeah. so it might be challenging to get it lined up with the cambium. It's, um, yes, usually on a smaller branch, probably for that reason. Um, beyond that, I don't think it makes that much difference. The timing is interesting. Uh, you're going to do this now? Or, uh, well, I, I was, you know, w- w- you know, I don't know if I'm going to do it today or, or yeah. next week or, yeah. or whatever. But I always, I'm just reading, you know, uh, from the UC Davis or handout I got, it's that you know June, yeah. and uh, is 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 a, is a good month to to be doing that type of uh, sure. That's uh, that's uh, when chip, they, chip grafting chip as budding. opposed to tea bud or whip yeah. grafting. Yeah, something that's done and when they're you know changing over a vineyard or things like that. Yes, this is a time they do it. The only thing about it is that when you're doing going into hot weather, keeping that graft sealed properly so it doesn't dry out becomes way more crucial than back in say February. Uh, so you're, you're going to want to wrap it with the right kind of tape and seal over it with whatever wax or whatever you're using to, to make sure that that holds be, and, and has a chance to fuse before it dries out. I guess that's probably the one risk of budding. I was never any good at budding or grafting, but uh, I know the, you know the principles. I know how to do it wrong if you ever need that. Um, and that's really the key is keeping it properly sealed. If you have a lot of questions about budding and grafting, a really useful resource is on Facebook with the California Rare Fruit Growers crowd. Oh, okay. Those guys are experts at it, CRFG. I mean, they have a website, crfg.org. But uh, on Sacramento Group is one you look for, and they are, you know, there's someone on there that can answer your question. They'll have done it. I know a guy in Woodland who has over 100 varieties of plums on one tree. He's just having fun doing that kind of thing. These are hobbyists who are enthusiastic. It sounds like an yeah. addictive yeah. hobby. It is. It is very addictive, actually. Apparently, and especially when you get one, get it to take, they get very excited. And they, you know, I know people who are really, really good at it. So you might ask them for more information. But the main thing I would be concerned about would be digging a proper seal on it. That's really yeah. the main answer I can give you. Good book on the reference too is the American Horticulture Society's book called Plant Propagation, with some very good diagrams and instructions for each. Uh, variety of of grafting techniques yeah i have that book so i mean it's the bible yeah right the timing is usually the crucial thing when is it too dry and hot for to take a with you know the biggest risk it's just like taking cuttings the biggest risk is drying out and so you got to do it at a time when it'll take quickly grow quickly you want them to break and grow as fast as possible and seal them and yeah now is the time but uh, generally when i look at pictures of it like i'm doing right now they're very thoroughly sealed with that special grafting tape that you find or that shrink wrap type of stuff that they put on there and there would those are that's a little hard to find although i'm pretty sure our friends at peaceful valley farm supply Mm -hmm. do sell grafting supplies 
Yeah. Well, I have all that stuff. Yeah. In the, uh, the seal. Oh, from before, sure. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. I and, and whatever. And uh, so, so, but anyhow, that's great. And I, I know you're supposed to try and do it on the, you know, the shady part of the tree. Right. Right. You know, if if you can get some shade on it and whatever. So, well, you know, like I said, there's nothing to lose. That's right. <laughs> you know, one of the advantages. Of, of, one of the advantages of budding is you can you got a lot of buds to work with normally. And yeah. if, if you do ten and one works, you've you've succeeded. Yeah, so, unless well, you're unless you're doing an orchard. <laughs> yeah. <right>. Okay. Great. <laughs> All right. Hey, John. Good luck. Hey, thank you much. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's well, a resource I really want to mention. California rare fruit growers. Those guys yeah. are amazing, and they have meetings all the time, and uh, they're a big active group on Facebook. Their website, a uh, website, a uh, website, crfg.org yeah. is a great reference if you want to learn about any variety of fruit of, yeah. about how how to grow it, how to propagate it, how to treat it for diseases and insects. It's really a very complete website as far as growing fruit. There's a picture that I show when I'm talking about plums from my friend Joe Real up in Woodland, who's the one I was mm-hmm. mentioning. He bought a house that had a typical red leaf plum out front. And rather than take it out, he just started budding on plums and pluots. I don't remember how many he has now. It may be over 150, <laughs> all on the same tree. So I have a picture that, I, that he took that he posted of like seven different plums yeah. in one shot, all on the same tree. Now, it's a little complicated keeping track of that. I, it's a fun hobby, but uh, not what I really recommend for the average backyard person. But clearly, grafting and budding, if you're good at it, can be lots of fun. Yes, and it, 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 that takes up your vacation time. <laughs> all right, there you go. good luck. We'll take a short break. More of Get Growing on the Way on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Don Shores here from Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis. Don, you know what is approaching harvest and being now in a suburban backyard, I am <laughs> lusting the space these crops are growing in mm-hmm. because I want the space for other things. Garlic and onions. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to their harvest in another yeah, month the, or uh, so. Yeah, the pattern has been interesting because of the weather. Some some yeah. of them are still leafy green, and, and people are wondering what to do. One of the simplest things to do is just bend over the foliage yep. if you haven't done that already. Ooh, okay, all yeah. right. That's bend an idea. Crimp them over a bit, and they'll they'll force them into to getting ready. All right. Well, speaking of onions, Tina and Carmichael has an onion question okay. for us. Hi, Tina. Hi. Hi, Fred. Hi. Um, I moved into a new house about a year ago, and there was a raised bed where the owner's chickens used to sit and stay cool for the summer. Mm. So I planted onions in there in the fall, and they were the most amazing. <laughs> they were like five feet tall. They were, they were nitrogen, yes. <laughs> well that's fed. What, yeah, that's what I was wondering. I thought, but so I went to, to test a couple of them, and the, the stalks are hard all the way down into the onion. Mm. And is that because of the nitrogen? Had they flowered? Uh, a couple of them tried to, and I picked them off, but uh, they never turned brown at all. Yeah, uh, you, can, you can have too much nitrogen for onions. I mean, generally, when they're grown commercially, they feed them early in the season, and that's it. Yeah, and, and won't you, feed them again until they start a spring a growth spurt. Right, and uh, you may have got, I mean, it's possible you got too much. But if they're forming up bulbs, uh, it may just be the varieties also. My experience has been some, like Italian red torpedo, 
uh, tend to be hollow. They tend to try and flower others that are more keepers, like the Stockton series, are more reliable and consistent. So it may be the varieties you planted. Also, when you plant them from the little bulbs instead of from the plants, you're more likely to have problems. I just have not had good results from the little onion sets. I really recommend the bare root plants for better results. So it kind of depends on what you started with. Yeah, they were the little skinny ones. They weren't the round ones. Little, they were plants. They were little seedling, seedling plants. Are those the ones that yeah. come bundled in yeah. packs of 50? Yeah, bare root plants. Okay. We, you know, they're all, right. all delivered in November. We all get thousands of them. They all yeah. sell out very quickly. That's the best way to go in general. It may be a varietal thing. I mean, you, you might want to just try different varieties next time. If they've bulled up properly, um, then you can use them. They just will be things you'll need to use quickly because they're not going to keep it. Yeah, well. they really, they really didn't. They. Oh, okay, you they, may have a night. You may have a, did you, a little bit, but but they. Um, you may have a surplus of nitrogen then. Yeah, out, yeah. Even though they're not bulbed out, they have that hard. Yeah. Thing going all the way down. Yeah, one, may, one thing you said, Tina, that sort of put a red flag in my mind is you said the chickens used to go there to for the shade. So is was this yeah. a shady area where the onions were growing? Well, it used to be, but like you, I took out a bunch of trees. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. There you go. Garden mattered more than the trees. Yeah. Well, there may be roots in there. There may be issues there as well. But I would guess, yes, high, 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 high nitrogen could be a factor. So I would grow a, a nice patch of corn there this year. Corn, oh, to use up the nitrogen. Use up the nitrogen. That's right. The corn oh, is a great okay, nitrogen. That's a good idea. Fill the bed with sweet corn and enjoy that to get some of that nitrogen yeah, out of there. Yeah, you didn't mention that on your list of things to plant this time corn, of year. Yeah, yeah, heck, yeah corn, sweet yeah. corn right now. Yeah. This is a great time for the extra sweets. Or so. popcorn. Yep, you can do that, but not in the same yard. Oh, not in the same yard. Yeah. Right. Great. Thanks that, so that's much. That's my solution. Okay, Plant Tina, corn. Good luck okay. with the onions. Yep. Um, okay. And that, that brings up a, a question uh, that right, I forgot. Corn. Uh, yeah. appeared on the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page of a, a garlic grower down in Texas sending a picture of his garlic plants and saying, is it time to uh, harvest the garlic yet? In Texas? I don't know. Here, yeah. here we're, we're not quite it's there, but yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, it's when half the leaves turn brown. Yeah. And it's, it follows the weather. I mean, to me, harvesting garlic is a sign of summer. Exactly. You think <laughs> so of 4th of July. You need some warmer weather yeah. for the plants to start triggering and dying down. You can hasten the process. The way I always used to do it was take a rake and just take it and bend over the plants with a leaf rake. Mm-hmm. So that you're not breaking them, you're crimping them a bit, and it kind of forces the plant to get going a little bit faster. The other thing people forget about, too, is uh, once that plant has ripened or grown as much as it's going to grow, it's going to take a while for those tops to turn brown, yeah. indicating that the plant is ready. So you need to reduce the amount of water just that's stop. going to those plants. Stop just turn watering. it off. Yeah, once, you, once you're getting into that phase, yeah. you could probably stop watering now. Which is... One of the smart things I've done in in the new place, because of years of years of experience, I, it finally got through my thick skull, have an on-off valve in each of the raised Absolutely. beds. Absolutely. Yeah. I At least separate, uh, something I always recommend is at least separate your tomatoes from everything else. Mm-hmm. So you can water them, I often say it this way, half as often and twice as long as the rest of the vegetable garden. That's an imprecise, but it's a, the principle is there. Deep-rooted plants like the tomatoes, by the time they're three feet up the cage, they can be going, again, half as often as everything else in your garden, but twice as long. They're deeper-rooted. The roots go quite deep. Uh, so you need to be able to water them differently. If you put the tomatoes in with your peppers and eggplant and squash, those need more frequent watering, and your tomatoes turn into these giant monstrous vines they don't produce as well. 
they actually produce better and give better quality if they're watered deeply and less frequently. So you'll need at least a Y coupling so you can have your tomatoes on one right. side, everything else on the other. It would be better to have all your beds separated so you mm-hmm. have more control over it. People growing onions and garlic, for example, often want to know, you know, can I harvest now? I want to get some peppers in the ground. You know, um, there are still things you can mm-hmm. plant by in July. There's, that's not the end of the world that you're going into late June, early July for planting things in that bed. I would you think, do pumpkins. too, that you've when can you put a date on when to turn off water to garlic and onions around here? Now, right now, yeah, Memorial Day weekend. How's that? Can I wait till noon? Okay. <laughs> Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> okay, we, we like to use these you know holidays; they're easier to remember. All right, spray your fruit trees. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Valentine's. Turn off the water on the onions on Memorial Day. So I purposely left half a raised bed blank mm-hmm. where I'm growing the garlic. And I'm thinking, well, maybe that blank half now I could put in my basil starts mm-hmm. that are should be put in the ground this weekend, and I can water those by hand while having the valve off on the uh, uh, yeah, garlic I, until I, that's ready. Newly planted things are going to need you to check them daily anyway. Right. I, I hate to have people turning on their whole drip line for their whole vegetable garden for the, th- the three squash plants or the two yeah. basil plants they just planted. I just keep a watering can out there so because I do water. This is the other thing. Aside from the advice we gave in the last program of checking your garden at midnight with a flashlight, <laughs> yes. the other thing is you need to walk out there at the end of the day. You should walk through your garden every day not only to see damage, but the new plants might need water, might not. And make it easy for yourself. Keep a watering can out there if a hose isn't nearby so that you can give that the two little basil plants some water so you don't have to turn on the drip line for the entire thing just because two newly planted plants need some water. Mm-hmm. I'll be planting actively through June, but the things that went in in April and May don't need to be watered necessarily because I've just put in another basil plant. We have to take a break, but when we come back, I want you to answer this conundrum for me, okay. Don. The One of my pepper plants gets really droopy in the afternoon, but I check it in the morning. It looks fine. Hmm. What, mm. what, what's a mother to do? We'll find out when we come back to Get Growing on okay. Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Along with Don Shore from Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, we're answering your gardening questions at 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Email, send it to fred at farmerfred.com. Garden Grappler coming up at 11 o'clock. Don will be uh, judging the quality of your answers for that one. It's Memorial Day related. Mm-hmm. Clues available at FarmerFred.com, at the uh, far- at Farmer Fred Twitter page, and at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. So, Don, I, I pose to you this question before the break. I'm, I check my pepper plants every day. I like to walk through my little garden. And I notice that one of the 10 or so pepper plants just tends to droop in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And I go out there with my moisture meter, and I check the moisture. Moisture level's fine. Right. I go out the next morning. The plant looks fine. So it's only drooping when the, when the ET rate is high, when the transpiration rate is high. Or when the sun is shining. Since you don't have nematode problems, uh, pr- 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 presumably, and you probably don't have vascular disease problems because you just have one plant yeah. doing this, I suspect if you dug this plant up, which I don't really recommend doing, you would amount to an autopsy at that point, you would find the roots are still bound up or they haven't expanded out that much. Uh, most likely it's just not rooted out as much as the other plants nearby or they're circling or they were bound in the pot. Now, you know that when you take a plant out of a pot, listeners, please do this. 
when you're buying vegetable plants, they generally are not root just bound. root bound. Yeah, <laughs> yes. and and uh, you should break up the roots yes. when you plant them. Oh, you I do. I'm aggressive. Break that the regard. bottom off, yeah. and you might have done it more than uh, proportionally mm-hmm. more to this plant than the others. That may yeah. be all you're looking at. Yeah, I, I would I would put it up to that. My uh, long fingernails. And that's uh, good in the long run. This stage of the yeah. season, I wouldn't consider it as a sign of any indication of any problem in your soil. So, yeah, it has peppers on it. Uh, it probably shouldn't. It's a little young for that. Well, what are you going to do? So uh, you have, as I recall, eight beds, and you have planted a very limited number of tomatoes. So how do you choose the right balance of tomato varieties to satisfy all the things you do with tomatoes when you're only down to eight? How many heirlooms versus hybrids? This is the first uh, year for this garden. Yeah. So this is the virgin year for these raised beds. So I wanted to go with some... I won't say fail-safe tomatoes, but tomatoes that I've tried in the past that have been successful. So there isn't much experimentation. Proven varieties. Proven varieties, exactly. So what do we have uh, for cherry tomatoes? Two varieties of cherries. I've got the Sun Gold and the Sweet Million. There you go. All right. Can't can't beat those in terms of yield, especially. Yep. For main season varieties, I've got the Early Girl, the Lemon Boy. For a beefsteak, I have Big Beef. And for one that produces quite well late in the season, in October and November, I've got Legend, which is, ah. an, heir, which is an heirloom variety. Okay. Yeah, that's been around. And the other heirloom I have, the only other heirloom I have, is an orange tomato called Kellogg's Breakfast. Oh, yes. I get people asking for that one by name. It's a very large, fruited one that's right. supposed to have outstanding flavor. My own experience with it was not high yield, but that I have only grown it once or twice. So Yeah, I've had yeah. good luck with it, so that's why I went with it this time. Odd name. I don't know people who eat tomatoes for breakfast but who knows perhaps some do <laughs> well the issue where that i'm contending with is anybody who listens to the show knows and they're sick of me talking about it sunlight yes it's it's yes. the matter now i've taken care of the trees in my yard cutting down 14 liquid amber trees <laughs> there are neighbors trees uh, yeah. now fortunately i have a nice neighbor uh, on one side who actually on the south side who actually cut down a coast redwood that has allowed more light that your neighbors are being very kind to your garden. That's very nice of them. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. they are. Well, this is, a, I mean, trying to balance. Uh, I have a lot of customers who are gardening for the first time every year. They're coming in, they want to plant some tomatoes. And I, I really want them to walk out with a cherry tomato and an early girl because I yeah. know those will work. And then at that point, you can have fun with ones that mm. sound interesting. Big Beef is one I haven't, hadn't grown for years. Thanks to Dan Vera and his posting a picture last summer, the success of his neighbors over there in the community garden. Right. I've been stocking it, and I'm growing it again this year. I'm growing Big Boy, which I haven't grown since my father grew it. I mean, that's been around that long. Yeah. There's improvements on it. But I want to re- see if it's still, you know, still up there in, with its, uh, competing with its uh, its progeny in the in the in terms of yield and quality is that better boy it's better boy came later (laughs) early girl came later big boy was the first big hybrid tomato that really caught on from burpee and in fact many people define heirloom by big boy big boy is the first hybrid that was a big commercial success Hmm. so anything before that is the 1950s is considered an heirloom right it can still be a hybrid even though it's that old uh you gave me one a couple years ago that was a hybrid from the early 1900s this class is an heirloom because it's been around that long. Right. They don't all have to be open pollinated. But uh, Big Boy was kind of the breaking point. Anything past that point is considered a modern hybrid. And I always want people to have some hybrids and some heirlooms and a cherry tomato mm-hmm. because you know that'll work no matter what. You know, we get the, I want to grow it in a five-gallon can or the, I have only shade or I have only this side of the house. Well, if you plant a cherry tomato in almost any situation, it will probably fruit in almost even even in relatively low light, it'll scramble up and find the sunlight somewhere. Uh, if you're limited for space, if you only have a container and you're still just thinking about planting tomatoes now, go out and look for patio 
or Husky yeah. Red, Husky Gold. What about uh, Juliet? Juliet is a nice yeah. compact grower, produces well, like a cherry tomato under almost any circumstance. Uh, Ace is a small plant with large fruit, so that's a good one for a container. If now, is it Ace or Ace 55? That's all the Ace 55 now, okay. and they've got the verticillium and fusarium resistance in there. Yeah. Those disease resistances are important, and they are in the hybrids, not in the heirlooms. Heirlooms don't have that disease resistance, and I, I've watched the trend towards more and more heirlooms over the last about 10 or 20 years, and I'm concerned that people are planting plants that don't have disease resistance. So you want to balance your portfolio, as Fred has done. Some hybrids, some heirlooms, some cherries, some rel- and then try something new. You know, always plant something you've never done before. One of the Brad Gates varieties, Michael Pollan, something like that. Something that will just be very interesting. A new color tomato. Uh, there's, I always do at least three or four more of his each year so that I'm working my way through all of his varieties, seeing which ones are really reliable, like Sweet Carneros Pink, Michael Pollan, mm-hmm. which ones haven't produced as well. You know, just try all the different ones. But make sure you got something in there that is a tried and true variety. And I'll tell you, Early Girl is grown and sold everywhere tomatoes are sold. It's considered one of the most reliable tomatoes nationwide. It is. It's a, it's a reliable variety. It's a good, I like to call it a training wheel tomato. There you go. And that lemon boy, actually, most of us who grow them and leave the plants hanging out there into the fall find it's one of the last ones still hanging on there Mm -hmm. still late in the season because it's got a a reliable late producer, as is early girl. Very pretty, beautiful, very sweet flavor. But if you're looking for a uh, tomato to grow uh, for your Thanksgiving dinner, uh, Legend really does uh, fill the bill there. And yes, you can still plant these. Yes, yes, all the way through June, really. Yes, you can still plant tomatoes. Now, I I would say, though, if you wait until late June to plant tomatoes, the the smaller fruited varieties have a better chance of getting all the way as opposed to a beefsteak 80-day variety. Yeah, 4th of July, uh, early girls an 8-ounce tomato. You know, looking for a 16-ounce tomato to to have time to ripen in late June would be a challenge. But your 8-ounce and 6-ounce tomatoes are fine. Juliet, things like that, the small fruited ones for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. And the other thing you'll run into is that, you know, places start running out. Um, Right now, every week I bring in 30 varieties or so. I'm sure if you went to Green Acres, they probably have 75 or more. Uh, but we're at Memorial Day weekend. It's not that it's not time to plant them. It's that sales are peaking and mm-hmm. many people are done planting. So selection will begin to dwindle. One thing you'll find is bigger plants at a lot of garden yes. centers. I mean, they really them up tall into plants five gallon or into containers. one gallon or five gallon. Yeah. And that, those are fine. It's one case where I don't mind selling someone a two foot tall plant, mm-hmm. even if it's in a four inch pot. Because I'll say, all right, break these roots up, drop it down deep, it will be fine. Yes. I'm not thrilled about selling a plant, you know, anything else is that big, but a tomato plant is not really an issue. And if you can't go that deep, you can dig a trench and lay it sure. sideways and it bend, bend up yeah. the top so it's above ground. The reason I drop them deep is to get them past the gophers. The reason That's... you drop it deep is because you have <laughs> class one ag soil and you can dig it deep. But my son bought me as an early Father's Day present an auger, a two-man auger. Okay. Four inch, six inch, and eight inch drill bits. And he and I went out there, this is last week, a week ago, and drilled 15 holes for tomatoes in five minutes. It took me longer to put the plants in the ground than it took to make the holes for them. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate that. That was a great Father's Day gift. That's sick. (laughs) I have never owned a piece of property where I could dig down that deep. We were going two feet for each of these. I was actually having to backfill some of the soil before I put the plants in. My neighbor was digging fence posts with a pneumatic hammer. Mm, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yes. That's right. You're over near Folsom, right? Yes. yes. All that uh, the soil that was damaged by the process of plaster mining. Actually, where we are, it used to be a cattle ranch. Mm. 
So be good. yeah, actually the soil is pretty good. So there's a lot of worm activity there. I'm 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 happy so about that. How do you that. change bad soil into good soil? Well, one of the I mean I don't have to worry about this, and most of my customers don't because we're in the fertile You're agricultural in a soil. We are. And floodplains are generally great yeah. soil, but a lot of your listeners may be in rockier, heavier, denser soils, uh, all of the above, possibly in some mm-hmm. cases, piling up stuff on them. It's the simplest thing, piling up leaves, mulch, mulch, organic stuff, get the arborist to dump his truck on your property every so often, and just keep piling it there and putting it out there. It's really the simplest thing you can do in the long run to improve your soil. If you you put six inches of some kind of mulch Mm -hmm. on the soil, it can be straw, it can be hay, whatever is available to you, all of the above, and just let the worms gradually work it in. You'll gradually increase the organic content. You'll find you eventually get... Unless you're literally on rock, you'll eventually get a workable soil. When we lived in Harold, being a lazy gardener, with all the plant trimmings that we had from all that work, in the back 40, I just had a place where I dumped all the plant trimmings. Yeah. And it, it, sort it, of a compost pile. Yeah, it's a, we like to call it a passive compost pile. <laughs> and it became soon a, 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 a windrow that was about 30 feet long right. and about 4 feet tall and about 10 feet wide. But I discovered that... As it shrinks, mm-hmm. you can actually move a portion of it, and that is just the richest soil that yeah. you've created for planting. I mean, if you're a compost person, like a master composter, you're doing that very carefully in places mm-hmm. in your garden. You're moving it, and you're taking it out and spreading it back in your garden. But you can do what you call I like that, passive composting. Yes. Yeah. Or, or Low-input composting. Yes, or as I like to call it, the possum hostel. <laughs> it does become wildlife habitat, folks. Watch out. <laughs> yes. All right, we'll take a short break. More Get Growing on the Way on Talk 650. KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Along with Don Shore from Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis. And in the email, I see uh, Terry has sent us a picture said that says, Beware the hornworm. And the mm. picture shows a single sort of cream or yellow colored egg on the leaf top leaf yeah. surface top that usually was a, that the, was a lazy hornworm yeah because usually those <laughs> eggs are laid by the moth on the underside of the yeah. leaf if you, if you recognize the egg that can save you a lot of trouble i don't consider hornworms a huge problem because you can generally spot them once you see the damage mm-hmm. and you can take them and you can either snip them in half with your pruners throw them to the chickens or fling them over the fence to your neighbor's yard but they uh, um they're increasing again. It's interesting. They, they kind of have come and gone. A few years ago, I never saw hornworms. First moved here, they were a common problem. They kind of dwindled for one reason or another. Now I have customers that are getting them again. I've had them occasionally on mine. You can see the foliage disappearing. You can see the droppings. And so you just look at the droppings and go up the plant visually, and there they are. And you're always a little startled by how big they are and how much they can eat in a short period of time. But it's not like there's dozens of them there. It's usually just one here, one there. And once you catch them, that takes care of the problem. You don't need to spray for it. I had a a customer ask me a week or two ago, when do you start your sprays on tomatoes? And I said, just out of curiosity, where'd you move here from? I say, yeah, I was from Ohio. Okay, so back there, I gather, you put your tomatoes in, and he was putting them in on two-foot centers in oh. raised beds. Two, he had 50 tomato plants, two-foot centers, raised beds, and I uh, wanted to know when he started spraying them because he'd already had to hit them a couple times with that fungicide. And I thought, yeah. I've never sprayed a tomato plant for fungus uh, because my plants are a few feet apart. Yeah, maybe three feet apart. And their yeah. foliage isn't touching. And if right. I get a little bit of blight on one branch, I just snip it off if mm-hmm. I even have that problem. It almost never happens here. The humidity here from about the 1st of June 
through early October is so low in the afternoon that diseases are simply not a problem right. like they are where he came from. And our so, overnight humidities are very low, too, compared and, to back there. And the, the air movement is good. I mean, you just don't have those problems. So I, I was kind of grilling him, like, well, what were you doing back there? So, oh, he rattled off like four fungicides that he rotated pretty much all summer long, including chlorothalonil and a couple others. I, I gather where it rains in the summer, growing tomatoes is a more intensive process. <laughs> yes. Here we just spread them out enough and uh, and cage them up so they're up off the ground mm-hmm. and the air movement takes care of those problems, which raises the ex- the annual question, do you need to prune your tomatoes? Oh, do we have to go there? No, it's easy. The answer is no. no. Yeah, thank <laughs> that's, you. That's easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go around pruning armpit hairs out of tomatoes is a rather <laughs> daunting task anyway. But there are those who have decided that's how I'm going to spend my spare time. If you're training them up on something, on like a vine, if you're going to grow them like a vine on a structure, then you're going to have to train them, which will involve some pruning. Mm-hmm. Some people commercially prune them in order to get earlier yields of larger fruit that ripens faster, especially in Florida where that gives them fruit in like April. Yeah. Uh, places where your season is so short that you, you got to do it to get as much energy into the very first fruit as possible. Arizona. We know that pruning reduces yield. Mm-hmm. That's that simple. Yeah, so exactly, overall, yes. Overall, it reduces yield. So you may have reasons to prune for reducing disease problems or the way you're training them or whatever, but really it's not necessary. And it does always uh, cut down on the total number of tomatoes you get through the whole season. They actually did that at, at Cornell University. Yeah. They did a funded research study about uh, the viability of pruning tomatoes and the production. And after spending all that money, the conclusion was, Pruning reduces yield. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, I'm glad they did it, so we yes. can we can quite quote scientists and you know sound official. Yeah. <laughs> going back to the hornworm, the the moth. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the cycle that's going on here. A moth laid that egg. Yes. And it's a moth with a rather big wingspan, but it tends to fly at night, which is why you don't usually see it around. The sphinx moths, hawk yeah. moths are the common names for them. Yeah. yeah. They're an impressive moth. Oh, you yeah. will sometimes find them during the daytime when they found a place. Uh, I had one on the the east-facing wall of my house much earlier in the season, back in February. It was the sunny wall of the house, and it had settled in there, and it just stayed there for hours until finally evening, I guess, came and it went out and did its stuff again. They're kind of the vampires of the garden. Uh, They're a very cool and interesting moth, but they're huge. So you look at a hornworm and you realize, well, that is going to turn into a large moth. Uh, The moths are fun to see in your garden, flitting around, going to evening-scented and evening-blooming flowers. And the damage they do on your plants is considerable in one spot, but they're, as I say, they're manageable. There's really no need to spray. Just find them and kill them. They are a pollinator. They are, yes. They are a pollinator. <laughs> yeah. They do some good. Yes. And they're, and they're, I mean, the biggest one, I think the biggest one is the Ackerman Sphinx Moth. Mm-hmm. I'd have to look it up. Like an eight-inch wingspan. Yeah, they're, yeah. I don't know about that big, but they're very large and they're, they're very impressive. And when they come in the house, because they somehow got in at night and they get into your lights, uh, it does scare some people. Cat toy. Yeah, Right. The, Catch it and put it back outside. Yeah, oh, yeah. Good. Let me know when you teach a cat that. <laughs> right. But uh, the moth then uh, has lived out its life mm-hmm. and it dies. Yeah, sometimes people find the pupa in the garden, which is, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. three inches plus big and, and yeah. wriggles as you pick it up. Again, you can dispatch that very quickly, just stomp it or whatever you like to do. And uh, to help you, they look like football, so just throw it like a football. There you go, into your neighbor's yard. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, the, the time frame for all this, so the, those moths tend to die off uh, after they've laid the eggs. Mm-hmm. Those tomato worms you missed get bigger and bigger, and then sometime in October, they will burrow down into the soil, create that cocoon that looks like a football. At the end of tomato season, when you're done with your tomatoes, if you pull the plants out and then... 
maybe get out your garden spade and turn the soil a little bit. You may find these footballs and toss them to the birds. There you go. One of my my most pleasant garden memories was one April day going out uh, in the early evening. I'm looking at the bed where I was going to plant tomatoes, and all of a sudden I see the ground moving. Mm. And I'm looking, and all of a sudden this moth is emerging from the ground. Wow. Wow, the miracle of nature. (laughs) And I stomped it with my foot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the angry gardener. Yes. <laughs> Having a nice life? <laughs> Gar- Bam! Gardeners and nature don't get along, is that what you're telling me? <laughs> well, I'm just saying there that was an organic cure. <laughs> That's right. Mechanical control is an improved method of pest control. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so, yeah, but that was uh, amazing to see. And uh, knowing that I stopped the development of the tomato hornworm problem is, is... If you ever catch one, put it in a jar to feed them, as is the kind of thing that would happen when I was growing up with a biologist for a mother. We would just you know catch them and, and have them as pets, whatever they were, tarantulas, snakes, hornworms. Yeah. We'd go into a terrarium type of thing. You, it takes an amazing amount of foliage to keep them going. Caterpillars do eat a lot of stuff, yeah. and a big caterpillar really eats a lot of stuff. Any of you trying to do monarch projects have run into this before. You get your caterpillars and you get your milkweed leaves, and then you run out, and then what do you do? Well, that's actually a challenge. You sell them more Asclepia plants. Right. <laughs> to be eaten in one day. Yes. It takes a lot of it. You better plant your Asclepias this year for next year's Monarch Project. Yeah, there's a, a lot of uh, big problems that can develop from little problems like that, and it's, uh, it pays to attach them, attack them early. Do your research ahead of time. I figured out a way, one of my other worries, because I do worry about everything, uh, <laughs> besides the amount of sunlight in my garden, the squirrels. Yes. The suburban squirrels. What oh, am I going to do? Oh, they're a nightmare. Uh, they're, they are the vandals of the garden. I have been getting a lot of calls about tree rats and squirrels. And I deal with tree rats, they're fine. I can coexist with tree rats just fine. If they want to peel a couple of kumquats and eat a few oranges and nibble on a couple of plums, I can live with that. What the squirrels are doing is coming in, knocking all the unripe fruit off the plum tree angrily. You know, every single God, one. This isn't ready. Every, yeah, every Spit single one knocked yeah. off, every single persimmon. And honestly, when you're dealing with, with vertebrate pests, is what we call that in the pest control business, mammals that are pests, you can trap them or kill them if that's an option for you. Uh, if you trap them in a live trap, you have to kill them. Do not catch something in a live trap and take it and release it. You've just violated federal law if you do that. The only thing you can do with something you catch in a live trap is release it on your own property, like the skunk in the basement in the live trap can go into your backyard, or you can kill it. Uh, other than that, you have uh, barriers, repellents, and um, removing habitat and food sources. I think and, it, and, we, we, we need to define the killing of these squirrels because the the ground squirrel versus tree squirrels, yep. different species, tree squirrels different actually, rules. Tree squirrels actually have a season. Yes, <laughs> but uh, exactly. the main point being, if you try, if people come in looking for live traps, and my immediate question is, what do you plan to do with it? Yeah. If you're taking it anywhere off your property to release it, not not only is that rude for those of us that live out in the country, uh, we don't really need your squirrels, thank you, uh, but it also is against the law. So you basically can only kill it at that point. So you might as well just use a trap that kills it if you're going to do that. Now, needless to say, in my community of Davis, we're not talking about killing squirrels for the most part. Um, that's not the direction most of those folks want to go, though they can. I'm even, surprised you went down this path being, to begin even with, Even being Don. pacifist, many of them get angry enough that they're ready to go there. Yes. But uh, what we end up doing is physical barriers. The only thing you can really do is screen them out, put on barriers, mm-hmm. prune the, the tree away from the fence, uh, go out and chase them off. I mean, there are not easy answers to the squirrel problem. Can't tree- you just build a tunnel for them to go to Dixon? Right. <laughs> Thank you. That's where I live. <laughs> so, um, the, the tree rats, uh, you actually 
doing a yard cleanup will help a lot. Yeah. Because if you sit out there in the evening, going out at night with your flashlight to check on the earwigs like you're doing, sit in a chair for a little while and watch the, uh, the trees grow. They're running very quickly through. A yard cleanup will often take care of that. We got news coming up after the news. It's Garden Grappler time, a chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred Prize Closet. Don Shore will be judging your answers. Clue available at FarmerFred.com. Clue available at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. Clue available at Farmer Fred on Twitter. So look for the clue and come up with an answer. Garden Grappler coming up next on Get Growing right here on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. It's Garden Grappler time. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred Prize Closet if you are up on your, I guess you'd call it a Memorial Day Garden Grappler question here. And the question is this. Name a plant variety or an insect with a military name. Mm. So that could be maybe somebody who was famous in the military. A rank uh, a weapon, uh, anything to do with the military. So name a plant variety or insect with a military name. Now, Don, I would think that being a nurseryman, you've already popped in your head a few answers. A couple. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah you have yeah. to work on this Such one. Such as? This is, well, no, don't, don't do that. But it, this is going to take some time. So there are visual clues at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page and a visual clue at the at Farmer Fred Twitter page page that if you can identify those plants that would be an answer and then over on uh, farmerfred.com if you click on the link it's going to send you to a rose search page and in that rose search page you could type in some sort of military term Mm -hmm. maybe the term general or something like that (laughs) and and come up with a list of possible answers okay so name a plant variety or an insect too. In fact, at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page, it is an insect with a military name. So a plant variety or an insect with a military name. All five callers get a prize, special bonus prize for caller five, because as you know, in the Garden Grappler, you cannot repeat an earlier answer. And when you go to that Facebook page, you'll see this horrific pruning job that you posted a picture of. <laughs> Let me get the this phone is, numbers out this here. This is just amazing. Nine, Go ahead. Nine, thank you. 916-576-1578. 916-576-1578. Or toll-free 866-331-8255. Name a plant variety or insect with a military name. Terry, you ready in there? Terry's ready. It's the Garden Grappler. Get on it. So you did mention one of the things that stuck in my craw wow. this week, yeah. Don, yeah. is the, this pruning job that was done at a shopping center in Folsom. Yes. And I posted some pictures of what they've done. It's, prun- it's not a pruning job. That's a, that's a too polite a term for what was done here. These trees were just mutilated. Yeah. yeah. In, a, in a shopping center. The, the reason I heard this was done this way, and this was, you know, they weren't sure they, they heard that this was the scuttlebutt, right. that the owner of the big store in this parking lot uh, was complaining that nobody could see the sign on the store, because the name of, of the store, because of the height of the trees. Right. So the property owner decides to hire a firm that I'm convinced was just a guy with a chainsaw. Don't think this is an arborist. No, no I don't think this. No. I think this violates the code of ethics. These trees, <laughs> in my estimation, look to be about ten to fifteen years old. Yeah. Of uh, there were sycamores or, or a platanus, oh, a London plane, yeah. and a Chinese pistache. 
yeah. and yeah. just went through and topped these trees. Climbed, I mean, up, looked, climbed up on a 10 to 12 foot ladder and cut off what they could reach is what it looks like to me. Yeah. Kind of like people do with crepe myrtles, which I mean, I, I don't like it when they do that to crepe myrtles, but it's not the end of the world because you're growing it as a small flowering tree. But you do that to a Chinese pistache. Don't do this. Yeah, don't How's do that? this. That's yeah. just a simple answer. Don't do this. Uh, this is one lost all of the shade value the trees were providing for the parking lot, lost the climate mitigating factors of the tree, the cooling it was mm-hmm. providing. And um, they're going to what's going to happen. They cut them down. I'm looking at this. The, the sign you can see on the building is about five feet above the height that they cut these trees. How quickly do you think they're going to grow back to about five feet? Oh, matter those branches will be so weakly attached, they'll just fall on cars. Yeah, ultimately, that are below be, them. yeah they'll become a risk. I mean, so it, it was counterproductive and ultimately significant harm to the to the safety of the trees. Very frustrating. Yeah, uh, and it's called yeah. topping trees, and there's a, a myriad of reasons why you should not be topping trees. It, it doesn't do the tree any good. And I'm wondering because they did this topping in late May. Yeah, that's going to have some stunting effect on the tree because they removed so much of the growth. And at the same time, it's going to put out panic growth. This yes. vigorous shoots all each point where they cut to probably five branches will emerge. I'll be watching the trees for vertical cracks, yeah. which would indicate sunburn. Yeah, and in yeah. the that because there's no leaf canopy anymore to protect this newly exposed bark yeah. to sun, all of a sudden we're going to have ninety degree weather tomorrow. Oh my. Okay, any arborists out there who who want to get your blood pressure up, head head over to, to get growing with Farmer Fred's uh, Facebook page. Yeah. And you'll see exactly what he took a picture. It's bad enough when they do this in the winter, but we're doing it in May. Uh, it couldn't probably there, you couldn't think of a way to stress the plant more, in my opinion. The Arbor Day Foundation offers several reasons why you should not top trees that remove so much of the tree's crown. Like you mentioned, it temporarily cuts off its food making ability. As I mentioned, it suddenly exposes the tree bark to the sun, possibly uh, resulting in scalding to the tree trunk. The large stubs that are left after topping expose the trees to insect or disease invasion. Yep. Any new? Yeah, that, you know, that's the other thing too. Is it takes a while for those wounds to heal naturally? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't see any wound paint applied to those cuts. Well, that's good, I guess. I mean, yeah, they, yeah. Been, yeah. But the fact of the matter is, this is insect active season. Yes. And they're flying, so they're going to be paying attention to those open wounds. You know, looking for something to munch on. Uh, any new limbs that sprout, as you mentioned, after removing a larger limb will be more weakly attached yep. than when the next rain or windstorm happens. Those branches may land on your car. Uh, if you're trying to control the height, those new limbs that sprout will be more numerous than normal, so the tree returns to its original height in a short time oh, with yeah. a when far the, denser the, crown, but again, <laughs> weakly attached. Blocking the sign with dangerous branches. Yes. So, they'll, so of course, they'll want to cut them again. And it's always going to be ugly. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, this is if, if, there is no. I once got called to consult on tree selection for a parking lot situation, and it was pretty much those were the parameters. Don't let them block our sign, and pretty much yeah. said, then you don't want trees. I mean, that's the answer here. You don't actually want trees in this parking lot because, and they were mandated to put in trees in our community. For example, in Davis, uh, there's a certain percentage of the parking lot that has to be shaded, fifty yeah. percent right. shading within X number of years. It's true in Folsom too. And they have to show the city and the design that that will happen simply by the tree selection. There's no tree that's going to stay small and give as much shade as you need. So you need to figure out a different way to do your signage. That's really the answer, commercial mm-hmm. property owner, is to put a sign out where people can see it and not count on people being able to see all the way through. Parking lots are major sources of heat. 
and pollution. And we know that trees mitigate pollution. I mean, that's one of the simplest things you can do to help reduce not just gaseous but particle matter pollution from engines and stuff is to plant trees. Uh, we know that it's a significant mitigator. So now the air there is hotter, more polluted, and they aren't going to do the job they're intended to do by the pruning. I have uh, taken to calling them the East Bidwell butchers because <laughs> I've been seeing this on a lot of shopping centers along East Bidwell yeah. in Folsom. Yeah. And it's not just that shopping center. It's other shopping centers as well that this is going on. It, it does eliminate the legal aspects of providing that shading. So I suppose a complaint could be filed. But there's, there's no enforcement of that shading provision right. after the initial design stage. Yeah, really if it's what approved, you need, it's approved. Right, it's been approved. Yeah. They don't go back 10 years later and go, oh, look, you didn't get your 50% shading. Yeah. What you really need is a local tree group like Sacramento Tree Foundation or Folsom Tree whatever. Do you have one? Mm, I think it would be the Sacramento Tree Foundation. Yeah, they, yeah. Should, they should be getting involved in educating yeah. property owners. Well, yeah, so I just hope it... I, my main concern, as I mentioned earlier, is I don't want people going to that shopping center and saying, oh, that's what you're supposed to do with your trees right, now. Right. We, no. get that, we get that question about crepe myrtles all the time yeah. because it's so widely done with them. It's not a supposed to in the case of crepe myrtles. It's a yeah. it's a bad habit that people can't seem to get out of. That's what we talked about the last time you are on. I think yes, we're, indeed. We're, we're, we're getting to associate you with butchering trees <laughs> Don't now. butcher your trees. Have yes. a professional do it, an actual professional, please. Yeah, there is a way to prune a tree that allows more light through sure. without sacrificing the health of the tree. But as you mentioned, it's probably more a case of put your sign up higher. Put your sign up higher or out on the street. Yeah. Yeah. The other rumor I heard was that people were complaining that there wasn't enough night light in the parking lot to safely go from their car to the store. Add more lights. Exactly. You can add lighting at ground level. Lighting is easy. That's an easy fix. Well, you know, a guy with a chainsaw is much cheaper and quicker. (laughs) In the short run. All right, let's go to the Garden Grappler. Today's question, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, name a plant variety or insect with a military name. And caller one on our list today, it's Roberta in Garden Valley. Hi, Roberta. Oh, good morning. I can't wait to get out and do my planting. Yeah. Perfect <laughs> weather for it. Yes. So, uh, army ant? An army ant. Sure. Don? Sure. Okay, that army works. ant. Army ant. That interesting choice. Okay, but uh, th- there is such a critter. Yes. Okay, all right. That's what I wanted to verify. Army ant. That works. Army ant. Yes, the name army right. ant applies to more than 200 ant species in different lineages due to their aggressive predatory foraging groups such as raids in which huge numbers of them attack others. Wow, and they wear helmets too. Right. <laughs> Uh, so basically, I'm. Saying, I remember an old movie much like this. Yes, yes. yes. me too. Yeah. I remember that movie. Yeah, yeah. it's called mm-hmm. Them. It was great. It played at midnight on the one of the three channels in San Diego. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I got for you the Farmer Fred vegetable planting calendar and my chart for soil temperatures for planting vegetable seeds. So I'll be sending that your oh, way. I, I have a, a great gauge. I sit on it. Yeah, you can do that too. Right. That works. <laughs> Very time-tested All technique. Right. All right, it, it, pays to, day, it pays to live in the country, Roberta. Thank All you right. Very much. <laughs> yes. Now, if I tried that at my place, sure, go for it. There, there's you, a Folsom Police knocking you'll, at the door. You'll get a reputation. Uh, your neighbors have asked you to put your pants back on, please. Thank you. And, and you can't shoot squirrels. Sorry. If you, if you want to read about army ants, by the way, go go to Wikipedia, and you'll be really glad we don't have these here. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Hey, we have some open lines. At five seven six one five seven eight in the nine one six or eight six six three three one eight two five five to answer the garden grappler. Name a plant variety or an insect with a military name. Get on it, and we'll set you up with some prizes as we continue with get growing on Talk six fifty KSTE. 
Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. And we are in the midst of the Garden Grappler, finding five answers to the musical question. Name a plant variety or an insect with a military name. Mm. Roberta in Garden Valley said Army Ant. That's a good answer. What would uh, Jim in Lincoln have to say? Let's find out. Don Shore, by the way, is judging the quality of your answer, Jim, so be good. (laughs) Okay. Uh, A wasp. A wasp. Hmm. Because, now wait a minute, this is coming to me now. Okay. Okay. You better explain this, Fred. Wasn't a wasp the nickname for a British fighter plane? Hey, you're correct. I oh, my goodness. And and it was a USS aircraft carrier. There you oh, okay, go. there you go. All right, okay. All, All right. right, I'm going to give that one a gold star. Yes. <laughs> that gets extra bonus points. Yeah, see, that's the type of stuff we're looking for there you here. Go. All right, Jim, excellent answer. I'm going to look that up to see if I'm telling the truth or not. You are. <laughs> okay, okay. We're, we're a bunch of old people up here in Lincoln. That's right. <laughs> All right. So I've got the Farmer Fred vegetable planting calendar. I'll send you away along with the soil temperature for planting vegetable seeds. Women chart. Air Force Service pilots. Oh, that too? The yes. wasps. Yeah, the wasps, sure. There you go. There yeah. were there were waves and there were wasps. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's true too. I yeah. didn't know. Yeah, wax, yeah, wax waves and wasps. Yeah, I had an, an aunt who was a wave. Yeah. And then, the, you know, she'd flown a plane, okay. she would have been a wasp. Yeah. She was kind of, you know, aggressive. That's even better, Jim. <laughs> there wow. you go. Yeah. Good job. Really? Thank you, gentlemen. All right. Thank you, Jim. All right. And good, I just good, gave good a job. hint, by the way. Did you? Know? I just gave a hint yeah. to the next caller if they think of this. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. All right. So I have a funny feeling. Uh, well, Don Shore wins today's grand prize. <laughs> we'll see. You've got nine minutes left, folks, to come up with an answer. Yeah, I'll, I'll give another little tickle of that hint, which okay. is, do you like petunias? Uh, yeah, I can take them or leave them. Take yeah. them or leave. I mean, there's some petunias that bloom a lot more than. Yeah, others. they are. I, yeah. I like them. Yeah. Like them, not the million bells. That's a calabacoa, right. but uh, the, the cascading kind. Right. They have large. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I think I just gave a hint. There. Yeah, you did. So if you so. thought of wasp and you heard our conversation, yeah. Okay. Anyway, I would really send people to any list of rose names. Well, that would help too. Yeah, yes. because there's a lot of generals out and there. And various insects yes. of type. Various and one, one really cool insect that I'm just itching to talk about here, but you know, yes. <laughs> we'll get there hopefully. Is that the one that's pictured? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, yeah. the one that the picture All right, of... let's talk about petunias a little bit because we were talking right. about things that make holes in leaves earlier. We, oh, we, we, you yeah. got to go out with yeah, flashlight yeah. at night with, to see the earwigs and the snails yeah. and, the, and the tree rats, which are in your yard as well. Uh, but there are things that make holes in petunias and in geraniums are a particular budworm. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen them yet, but right about where they show up seems to be weather related. Normally they show up first in late May. I would expect once we warm up, we'll see some of them. That's the geranium budworm. And the telltale uh, sign? Well, first of all, the flowers aren't there anymore. The, the flowers are opening with holes in them if there are any present. And the little droppings all over mm-hmm. the flower buds, in the case of geraniums especially. And they have multiple generations here. So to me, petunias are a hassle because we either have to treat them with a insecticide systemic right. or spray them all the time with BT. And neither of those, in my opinion, yep. the first case I wouldn't like to do in the second case that nobody gets around to it. So to keep them blooming is actually a pretty high maintenance uh, proposal. Uh, they give lots of bloom. My trade magazines are full of pictures of petunias and calabricoas, which are closely related mm-hmm. and also get the budworm. But to me, with eight or ten at least generations of that thing from now through October, it's just a high spray crop. 
If you don't mind spraying BT, it works. Do it, you know, it's a low, very safe material. But if you, you gotta, hit them, you got to do it about every week or two. So basically, it's one of those things you're just going to spray them every week or so. I'd get a ready to use version, mm-hmm. just spray it right on the flower buds, and that keeps them going. But that is an issue with those. And geranium budworm is pretty specific to certain flowers. Uh, it gets on the regular geraniums, but not your ivy geraniums, for example. So if you really like geraniums, maybe focus on the ivy mm-hmm. geraniums. It does get on petunias, and unfortunately on calabrocoas, which are coming in just amazing array of colors. Uh, I, I look at all these magazines, I'm going, wow, that would be great if we could sell all these hanging baskets full of calabrocoas, but I just look at them and go, caterpillar food. Um, if you don't mind spraying, and it's an organic spray, but you got to do it pretty much all summer long for the geranium budworm. I have a question for you. You may know the answer to it. And I ask this out of complete innocence. Okay. Is imidacloprid registered for use on budworms? Yep. It is. Yep. Okay. There are some beautiful displays of annual bedding plants at a shopping center in South Davis. For those listening in Davis, the one where the Safeway is, they always use petunias in there and they never have holes in them. And I think the only way they're doing this is I know they're not going by and spraying them every week with BT yeah. is by using imidacloprid. Which is a systemic. Yeah. yeah. So they're using a, a season-long systemic insecticide to get the perfect-looking petunias. Um, commercial gardeners are willing to do that. Remember where my nursery is and uh, suspect, you know, if I put up a display of imidacloprid for your petunias, I have a feeling I would have picketers out front. <laughs> but uh, putting, putting insecticide on seasonally for flowers probably would sort of go beyond what people are willing to do in our community. Yeah, there's a, an active bee community near you. Yes, yes. And then we know that imidacloprid is not great for pollinators and yeah. a lot of other beneficials. So. All right. Back to the garden grappler naming a plant or an insect with a military name. Okay. Ter- Terry and Fair Oaks be my guest. Well, how about a drone bee? There we go. Ooh. There we go. <laughs> See, we're getting, people are really being creative here. So a, a drone being a military weapon. Well, yes. Yes, okay. sure is. Oh, and the, and the from my neighbor in the backyard. Well, well yeah, that too, those are yeah. civilian drones, but yeah, those are kind of annoying. Yes. The drone is the male bee. Yeah. 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 Yep. Hey, and I also um, have a, a comment. I, I sent you the picture on the on the uh, the hornworm egg. Yes. Oh, okay. And I found that last year we had hardly any any hornworms at the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. and then as the year went on, we had more and more wasps. So we started knocking down the nest. Oh, yeah. Toward the end of the year, we had more and more hornworms. Yep. There's an interrelationship yes. there. Yes. Wasps do go after the hornworms. Yeah. One of the prettiest sights I ever saw was a yellow jacket tearing apart a tomato hornworm on one of my plants. You were a and, morbid gardener. Uh, <laughs> Your anger at these hornworms needs some counseling. This wasp just basically cut off yeah. of what would be sold as a giant Subway sandwich and, and, and carried it back to wherever. Yeah. yeah. Well, and yes. better, better in my yard, I there think. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot for calling. All Great right. answer, by the yeah, way. Yeah, Drone B. Good answer. I'll be sending you that uh, seed, uh, uh, what is it, the soil temperature for planting vegetable seed chart, as well as the Farmer Fred Vegetable Planting Guide. Excellent. So, all right. Thanks, Terry. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank All right. You. Bye-bye. All right. Good answer. Yeah, I mean, there are natural predators out there for a lot of these things. Yeah. And uh, and you don't have to put up with yellow jackets. There are other wasps that will do it as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Paper wasps. Paper wasps, wasp, which look a lot like yellow jackets and yeah. get the bad reputation, but are way less aggressive. I mean, we deal with them. And yeah. they're not, they're not going to come after you unless you literally take a head shear through their paper nest, which I have done. Mm-hmm. That made them angry. Other than that, they're, they're pretty benign. <laughs> yes, or, or you reach into a pipe where they are right. or something like that. And they'll just warn you. It's not, I mean, yellow jackets will come out and the whole, they'll, they'll go after you. Yeah. yeah. Yellow jackets will chase you. Yes. Yes. Paper wasps will just 
Yeah, we went through a yellow jacket underground nest in the Black Hills when I was a kid, yeah. and they they ran, they come after you. And here's the thing: my grandfather is yelling at me, "Don't run!" It's really hard not to run when you're being chased by a nest full of yellow jackets. He was right, though. You freeze. And then you stand there freezing and they lose interest in you. Just for, for your reference, if you're out in the wild and you're not dealing with Africanized honeybees, yeah, but you're actually, actually dealing with yellow jackets, yes. they, uh, they will run after you if you are running. So it, but it is not your instinct, let me tell you. No. In my <laughs> conflicts with yellow jackets, what I learned to do is run a zigzag pattern. Ah. Because, because they have to fly straight. They I can't thought that do was, it. I thought that was bears that you did no, that with. No, you do no. You run a zigzag pattern. So All dro- right. The drone is the male bee. Yes. Cannot sting. And has a very sim- simple role in life. Hey, Gene and Sebastopol, go ahead, give us a uh, military uh, plant or insect. Uh, the general hand plum. The- oh, yes. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> what is it, the general? Your, your, your listeners are very creative. Let me see if I can get some information on this one. The general hand? Yeah. Yes, general hand plum. Okay. It's a yellow plum. It's been around for, oh, goodness, how long? is it? It's a green gauge type, I believe. All right. And uh, that's a great answer. That's a really obscure one. You get, uh, you get a gold star, too, right up there with the wasp guy. Uh, <laughs> I, I have something to say. I, I came on the, the uh, military transport, the General Hand, from Germany ah. in 1950. Okay. Ah, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> and there's a plum named it. It's a beautiful, yeah, yes. beautiful right. yellow plum that's been around for a long time. All right. Good answer, Gene. Thanks for playing our game. Fine. I'll send you all that stuff. I said I'd send the others. But Priscilla, down in Atlanta, might just take away the grand prize. Atlanta, Georgia? Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. I'm going with Admiral Rodney Rose. Oh, my goodness. Yes, that's another. you got a military listenership, uh, Fred. So. Admiral Wadme, which is spelled, if I recall, W-A-D-N-E-Y. And it is a... Uh, let me see if I can find it. No, that's not the spelling. Anyway, I no, spelled it wrong. No, it's Rodney, R-O-D-N-E-Y. Or Rodney, like Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. All right, yes, Rodney. Okay, well, good answer, Priscilla. So what do I have? What do we have for somebody beautiful, in Atlanta? Beautiful pink rose. Wow, that's lovely. It's a hybrid tea. And, okay, Priscilla, because you're in Atlanta, I'm going to send you the book, Home Gardener's Annuals, which is good across the country. Great. So thank I'll, you. I'll be sending you that book. Priscilla, good to hear from you. Thanks for the great answer. Uh, thank you, Fred. Have a good day. You too. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, congratulations. We got all five in. That was tough, and nobody said Soldier Beetle. <laughs> yeah, nobody said Soldier Beetle, which was the picture at the Facebook page. Yes, that was the Soldier Beetle, Leatherwing Beetle, yeah. one of the most voracious aphid eaters in your backyard that you can allow. You don't release them or anything. You just They just happen. Yeah, they yeah. just come along, and they'll they'll eat aphids better than the ladybugs will do. Don't you have a store to open? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this Admiral Rodney Rose. I'm going to have to find one of these. What is it? It's a hardy rose which produces large, fragrant blooms and rose pink with a deeper reverse. Hybrid tea? Or yeah. what is it? Yeah, yeah. hybrid tea. Yeah. Oh, I'll okay. keep an eye out for that. Good choice. Good choices, folks. Y'all did a great job Apple. today. All right. Where are you going? I, I'm going to the Redwood Barn Nursery, which is at 1607 Fifth Street between L and Pole Line, where we're open from 12 to 5 today and normal hours tomorrow, 9 to 530. That would be in Davis. That's in Davis, oh. California. Don Shore, as always. Thank, thank you, you for dropping by yeah. here. Appreciate thank it. Thanks a lot. And when we come back, we're talking about Newcastle disease in exhibition chickens. How, if you're an FFR or a... Uh, uh, 4-H'er, and you're exhib- exhibiting chickens, you may want to know about how you can protect your flock. That's coming up as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. The California Department of Food and Agriculture has detected virulent Newcastle disease in a small flock of backyard exhibition chickens down in Los Angeles County. It's the first case of Newcastle disease in the United States since 2003. The California Department of Food and Agriculture is working with federal and local partners as well as poultry owners to respond to the findings. State officials have quarantined potentially exposed birds and they are testing them for the disease. And it's essential that all poultry owners follow what's called good biosecurity practices to help protect their birds from infectious diseases. And that's especially true if you have exhibition chickens. And we're coming up into exhibition season at all the county fairs and the state fair. So if you're an FFA or a 4-H'er or you just show exhibition chickens, you need to pay attention and to implement some biosecurity practices. So what are we talking about? What about Newcastle disease? Let's find out. We're talking with University of California certified poultry health inspector Cherie Sintas Glover. And Cherie, Newcastle disease, it's been a while since it's uh, popped up, right? It is. Um, the last time it came up was in 2003, like you said, and it came at exactly about the same time of year. Uh, and it was pretty devastating for a lot of our 4-H and FFA members because this is summertime. This is when the fairs and the expos get started. And they were a lot of them were not able to show their live chickens or exhibition birds at the fairs. So explain exactly what Newcastle disease is and, and how it gets spread. So Newcastle disease, when it came up in 2003, like you mentioned, uh, it was devastating to poultry exhibitors, especially those during the summer months. Uh, the 4-H'ers and the FFA'ers were all getting ready to exhibit during you know the regular fairs and expos, and they couldn't. Many of the kids that have worked so hard on their projects were not able to show their live uh, poultry at the fairs. Because isolation was needed, so it must be a very contagious virus. It is. Newcastle is extremely uh, easy to spread, and the reason for that is it can be spread in lots of different ways. A lot of people think about their chickens, you know, and if they're healthy and if those are the vectors. But people also need to be concerned because they can spread Newcastle on things like their shoes and their clothes if they're around infected flocks. This is a disease of poultry. It's not spread to humans, is it? It's not, but humans can develop eye infections and conjunctivitis Hmm. um, if they're exposed to it, like in the right levels. So humans can't contract Newcastle disease, but they can experience some eye inflammation. Talk a little bit about the symptoms of, of Newcastle disease. There is a long list of symptoms that birds will show. And the difficult part of trying to figure out if you if your chickens have Newcastle is that they don't always show the same symptoms and they might, always, they might not always show the same combination. Um, but some things to look for include sudden death. If you have a flock or a chicken that's suddenly dying for no apparent reason, that could be a sign. Your chickens also might be sneezing. They could be gasping for air. They might have a nasal discharge, and they could exhibit signs like coughing. They could have greenish, watery diarrhea, uh, decreased activity. So if your birds are not feeling well, they're not going to be as active as they normally are. They might also experience tremors, droopy wings, twisting of the neck or the head. They could even have complete deafness. And sometimes they also have swelling around the eyes and the neck. So basically, it's the discharges of the chickens that can spread this virus to other chickens. 
It is. It's the nasal discharge and it's the feces. And that's what makes it so difficult to control because as a chicken keeper, a lot of times you're out there in the chicken yard, you're walking through feces on a regular basis. And so those shoes that you're wearing can also spread the disease. It's not just about being around the chickens, but it's the equipment, it's the feed, and it's even the clothing and the shoes that you wear in the chicken yard. So I guess it just comes down to basic good sanitary practices for anybody who has exhibition chickens, maybe uh, keeping a a change of clothes uh, out by the barn or whatever and not uh, wearing the same clothes that you were working with with the chickens and going to another batch of chickens. Exactly. So a lot of people, a lot of backyard chicken keepers will actually have a, a pair of coveralls they'll use. And that's only what they use when they go out, you know, with their chickens that are are healthy, that they've been there for a while. They also want to practice good biosecurity when it comes to bringing new chickens into the flock. You want to isolate, you want to quarantine for at least 30 days, if possible, before you introduce those new chickens. I have read that sunlight is is one great way to help stave off Newcastle disease. Well, that and that is actually one of the crazy things. So as easily spreadable as Newcastle is, sunlight and ultraviolet rays will kill it. And so a great thing that a backyard poultry owner can do is when they are disinfecting their equipment or their brooders or whatever they're using, even if it's their boots that they've been using in their chicken yard, great thing is to disinfect them and let them dry in the sun and have that ultraviolet ray contact with their shoes and with their equipment. What I find interesting about Newcastle disease is a bird can be very healthy looking for what, two to 15 days and still be transmitting that virus before symptoms are seen. Oh, totally. And well, and it's, it's scary because it can actually go through your flock within a week. Um, but it takes about 30 days for your flock to actually, you know, get over that disease. Um, and it's, it spreads a hundred percent. You know, once your flock is exposed to that, they're always either going to be a carrier or they're going to die as a result. And that's just another reason why it's so important to be, you know, to be protective of your flock and to follow those good biosecurity rules. And I mentioned that it's a fair season. So you got the county fairs and the state fair and you've got the exhibition chickens. And I would think, too, that those chicken owners should practice some sort of isolation when they leave the fair and take the birds back home. A normal routine for a, a exhibition uh, poultry owner is to do a quarantine. And they usually quarantine them for at least two weeks after they get back from a show um, and because they, they want to make sure that that bird is healthy, that they aren't bringing anything else back home. In addition to practicing good biosecurity, what else should bird owners do? Three simple rules. They should be able to look, report, and protect. Look means being able to identify what's normal behavior for a chicken, um, to be able to notice if they're not feeling well, if they might have contracted something, if they're behaving differently. So if you're able to look and observe you're able to notice those kinds of symptoms or signs more quickly. The next thing is to report. If you have a bird that's ill or demonstrating any of the signs and symptoms that we talked about earlier, report your bird right away. There's a sick bird help um, line that you can contact or a hotline. You can also utilize some of the uh, CDFA labs. We have one in Turlock and one in UC Davis that are closest to us and they actually specialize in avian science. And they'll actually perform a necropsy on your bird to figure out what's going on. But reporting um, is extremely important because that's what's going to help prevent the continued spread of a disease. Um, and then also protect, follow those good biosecurity rules. That means, you know, restricting visitors, you know, isolate your flock to a certain degree, but, you know, don't have a lot of access if you don't need to, you know, from other chicken owners. 
um, you know, avoid those contacts with wild birds or with rodents. Even insects can can uh, be vectors for disease. Make sure the feed is clean. And then also the most basic thing of all is washing your hands. Wash your hands when you go from one chicken yard to the next. If you follow these rules, it'll at least help you um, help, you know, protect your flock from from things that could be very dangerous. And with Newcastle disease having been found in Southern California recently, it might be a good idea for other exhibition bird owners to keep handy. The California Sick Bird Hotline number, which is 866-922-2473. That's 866-922-BIRD. Fair season's approaching. There'll be a lot of great exhibition chickens on display at the county fairs and the state fair. We got to keep them healthy. We've been talking with Cherie Sintas-Glover, UC Certified Poultry Health Inspector, proprietor of chickensforeggs.com, an urban chicken consultant uh, as part of her work. And Cherie, thanks for all the good information about virulent Newcastle disease. You're very welcome. And I hope everyone is able to keep their fox safe and happy and healthy. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650, KSTE and KSTE.com. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Coming up after the news at noon, it's the KSTE Farm Hour. and We'll give you the latest on the farm bill that's up in uh, Washington. Well, it was voted down last week. It was a combination of congressional Democrats and conservative Republicans who voted no. However, it'll get reworked. Things will, you know, money changes hands or whatever happens in Washington, and uh, they'll vote on it again uh, coming up in June. We have the details on that. Uh, China trade. Now, that's an interesting topic. We report on progress in U.S.-China trade talks and the tariffs that did not materialize yet. And um, tell you what's new there. Also, California farmers are wide-eyed at the prospect of growing a drought-tolerant crop, one of whose products fetches $90,000 an acre at harvest time. No, we're not talking marijuana. We're talking hemp, the good cousin of marijuana, and its prospects for its legalization are increasing thanks to that farm bill in Washington. Yeah, California may be able to solve a lot of problems uh, with uh, this crop, especially if it fetches $90,000 an acre at harvest time. Well, we have a report, an in-depth report on hemp, the chances of growing hemp commercially in California, the crop with 25,000 uses. All that, the latest crop news and more coming up on the KSTE Farm Hour, noon to 1 o'clock, right here on this very radio station and KSTE.com and available anytime at the iHeartRadio app or your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, be it iTunes or your favorite Android uh, podcast machine. All right. Garden events. What's going on? Thanks for asking. What is going on? Well, today, from 2 until 4 o'clock, over in Davis, the Yolo County Master Gardeners have a kitchen gardening talk going on. They'll be talking about presentations on how to stock your kitchen with homegrown fruit, vegetables, edible flowers, and herbs. And they're going to be talking uh, today about feeding fruit trees, harvesting berries, garden pests, how to control them, honeybees, seeds, and plant starts to consider for your summer kitchen garden. So that's coming up at 2 to 4 o'clock at the Mary Stevens Library, the Children's Area Conference Room at 315 East 14th Street. 
uh, in Davis, and it's free, and it's 2 to 4 o'clock today. So that's going on. Coming up on Wednesday in Folsom, Carrie Reed will be talking. Carrie Reed is the San Joaquin County uh, Ag Advisor, and she's been trialing low water use plants for the sun and for the shade. And that's a question that a lot of people looking to revamp their landscape are asking. And she's going to be doing an evening talk about the low water lush landscape. You'll learn how to find and combine regionally appropriate plants to create an incredibly lush garden that's smart on water use and how to install these plants. And that's coming up Wednesday evening, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at the Folsom Community Center at 52 Natoma Street in Folsom. And they would like you to register, if you would, please. And you can do that by either calling 916-461-6174 or emailing the uh, City of Folsom Water Conservation Department at waterconservation at folsom.ca.us. Down in Calaveras County, the farmer's market is open for its uh, seasonal run the second Thursday of each month from 4 to 6 p.m. And the Calaveras County Master Gardeners participate in that to answer your garden questions and a lot more. And you can find out uh, all the answers you need for uh, foothill gardening when you visit the Calaveras County Farmer's Market second Thursday of each month, which is held at the Master Gardeners Demonstration Garden at the Government Center at 891 Mountain Ranch Road in San Andreas. Coming up on Saturday, June the 2nd, the Master Gardeners of Napa County have a class on Rose Care, and that'll be from 10 a.m. to 12 noon at the Cooperative Extension Meeting Room in Napa at 1710 Soskill Avenue. And there is a charge of $5 per person for this workshop, and seating is limited. And uh, for more information, you can call 707 253 4221. Again, next Saturday is that event, 10 a.m. to noon. Going on in uh, Folsom, 9 to 1 o'clock next Saturday, it's Lavender Day at the historic Mirror House in Old Folsom. The Mirror House and Learning Center is located at 1125 Joe Muir Court in Folsom. It's free. And if you're wondering where Joe Muir Court is, it's off Folsom Boulevard. Basically, you would take uh, Forest Street and wind back through there. And uh, you'll you'll find uh, Joe Muir Joe Muir Court, and it's uh, they have speakers too. Uh, Greg Gayton from Green Acres Nursery and Supply will be there to talk. Bluestone Meadow Lavender Farm in Apple Hill will be there as well. They'll have lavender plants and gifts for sale, and it's at the Muir House, which again is at eleven twenty five Joe Muir Court in Folsom. More information at their website muirhouse.org. Muir, by the way, is spelled M U R E R, so it's. M-U-R-E-R-H-O-U-S-E dot org for more information. Also going on next Saturday from 10 to 4 o'clock at the Shepherd Garden and Arts Center, it's the Fuchsia Show and Sale put on by the Sacramento Fuchsia Club at 3330 McKinley Boulevard, which is in McKinley Park. Free admission and parking. There will be plants on display by the members. Also a lot for sale. Many varieties that do well in our area. There are, of course, fuchsia experts there to help you choose the plants, along with cultivation tips and care. And uh, as always, come early for the best choice and uh, bring bring money. All right. No credit cards. Checks are valid, though. And uh, the fuchsia show and sale again next Saturday, 10 to 4, at 3330 McKinley Boulevard at the Shepherd Garden and Art Center. Fuchsias, really a gorgeous plant when they're in bloom and uh, actually aren't as finicky as you may believe. And I'm sure you'll find that out there when you uh, visit the Fuchsia Show and Sale. 
at McKinley Park at the Shepherd Garden and Art Center next uh, Saturday from 10 to 4. All right, how about one more look at the weather just for the heck of it. Uh, 75 degrees right now in Sacramento. The high today warming up as opposed to yesterday. Warming up to 88. 95 on Monday. 94 on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, the temperature plummets sort of to 80 degrees. And then plummets a little bit more on Thursday to 73 degrees. Then on Friday, 78. And then Saturday, 85. We call that a meteorological roller coaster. Your plants will be confused. Your watering habits will be confused. I would suggest watering by hand, or at least turning your timer on by hand to mollify the plants based on whether they need water or not. Always check the soil before you water. And this is especially true with containerized plants. Now remember, with this being the first 90-degree heat that we've had this year, it's going to catch a lot of us people by surprise. If you have containerized plants, especially if they're in sunny areas, especially if they're on concrete, especially if they're against a south or a west-facing wall, they're going to dry out quickly. Don't forget that plants in containers, especially black plastic containers, the soil in there can reach 140 degrees. So moisture dries out very quickly. And you're going to suffer some plant damage, too, if you do let it dry out. So it may require watering twice a day. When temperatures get over 90 Think about your containerized plants if they're in full sun, morning and evening. That may be the best times to water them if they need it. Again, make sure water is draining out the bottom. All right, there, there, there are garden, there are holes in the bottom, right? I am always amazed when I find containers at people's homes where they're growing plants and there's no drainage at all. It doesn't work that way. So, what about these containers though that are on? Hot surfaces, raise them up a bit, put some bricks or boards or or move them to a shadier area in order to improve drainage. Also, consider, too, those containers that may be placed on the ground. It's not uncommon for plant roots to go out the drain holes on the bottom of the containers and anchor themselves in the soil below, thus blocking those drain holes. So you may think you have drain holes, you may think it's draining, but... Again, this is where a moisture meter comes in handy where you can plunge it down the 8 or 12 inches depending on the size of your container and see what the moisture is like. If it's muddy, first thing you do is turn that pot over, make sure the drain holes are clear. Another way to help control any problems in that regard too, if as summer approaches with your containerized plants, maybe move them so they get some afternoon shade. Put them together, group them together to keep the humidity up or even stick a pot like a black plastic pot, into a larger container just so to protect it from hitting the, the sun directly. So keep the sun off those black plastic pots during the summer and put some protection around the outside. You could even wrap, I don't know, aluminum foil loosely around the outside and pretend they're a spaceship or, or not. Yeah, don't do that. Hey, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Coming up on next week's show, garden writer Debbie Arrington joins us here on Get Growing. I appreciate your support all these years. 26 years of Get Growing. And they said it couldn't be done. Well, ha! <clears throat> glad to be here. I'm glad you're here, too. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.